In 2007, a young man by the name of Isaac Slade found himself in a torrent of grief. He said in an interview, quote, I kept getting these phone calls from home, tragedy after tragedy. If there's some kind of person in charge of this planet, are they sleeping? Smoking? Where are they? Now, Slade is a musician and a poet, so in one of his songs he paints this picture uh, where he's in the early morning twilight. Uh, I imagine him sort of coming out to this like gas station, but he finds God on a street corner. And, uh, and it's not this timely, loving embrace that you kind of expect. Rather, he finds God standing on the street corner, kind of like Bruce Springsteen, smoking his last cigarette indifferent to the sufferings of the world. And so he walks up to God and says, Where were you? I've been waiting by the phone for you to call, but you never did. You never left me any messages. You never sent me any letters. Where were you when everything in my life was falling apart? I don't know about you, but I've prayed prayers like that before. So did C.S. Lewis, actually the famous author of the Chronicles of Narnia. Late in life, he was married. Uh, A lot of people don't know. But he lost his wife to cancer after only a few years. And Lewis processed his grief the way he processed most things, which was by writing. And at a particularly low point, he wrote the following words. Going on about his grief, he says, Meanwhile, where is God? When you're happy, if you remember yourself and turn to him, you'll be welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is in vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. And after that, silence. This is my question this morning. Is God too busy for our problems? Is it like Isaac Slade said in that interview that he's sleeping or he's smoking on some street corner like an absentee landlord? Does God slam the door in your face and double bolt the lock from the inside at the moment that you need him most? Anyone who who has suffered before will tell you that sometimes it feels like that. Amen? But my aim this morning is not to talk about feelings. We feel like all kinds of different things. My aim is to talk about what is true when you suffer. Not what you feel when you suffer, because you all know that plenty well enough. But what is true in the middle of our sufferings? What is the truth of God's posture toward a person who is suffering? Is he indifferent? Is he angry and spiteful, like so many of us tend to think? Or maybe he's well-intentioned, but he's just a little overwhelmed by his workload right now. Maybe he's just a little too busy. He's got, I mean, you know, he's got like 8 billion people to look after, right? Surely he doesn't have time for you. Regardless of how we might feel about God, what is he truly like? As one author I've been reading has been saying, uh, this is why we need a Bible. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29. Matthew 20, 29, that's 825 on your pew Bibles, the black ones. If you're visiting with us and you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home with you. We have more than enough. 
the very first thing we need to know about this text, Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, is that the Jesus that we find here is very busy. This is probably the busiest moment of his entire life, actually. Verse 29 says that as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. Now, Jericho is the last stop before Jerusalem if you're approaching from the north. If you're coming down, up from, down from Galilee or the butler of ancient Israel, right? Uh, it's a, Jericho is your last stop. It's about a 15-mile walk outside of Jerusalem. And in those 15 miles, you gain about 3,000 feet of elevation. Jericho is below sea level, and Jerusalem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. So a pretty tough day's walk ahead. And we know what Jesus is going to be doing when he gets there. He has this massive following. He's 15 miles away, and he's going to go, and at the beginning of chapter 21, make his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is the moment when he's going to symbolically proclaim Yes, everyone, your intuitions were right. I am the Messiah. I am the conquering king. And we all know what happens after that. So Jesus has a busy day ahead. And right in the middle of this busy day, behold, verse 30, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Isn't it ironic that the two blind men are the only ones who are able to see who Jesus really is? Well, the crowd rebukes them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, I want to make really clear that to be a blind man in the ancient Near East was to suffer. There was no social safety net. They didn't have welfare. There wasn't like uh, you know special people governmental assistance that will come and people who will you know teach you and help you to pay your bills. They didn't have braille. Uh, to be a blind man was to be utterly helpless, and so there was one profession that these men were able to observe. Anybody guess what it is? Beggar. Right on. They were begging, and they they hear of Jesus coming and they say. Come, have mercy on us, son of David. I've got nothing. My life is a living death. I can't contribute anything to anyone. All I do is sit by the road and grovel every day, suffering. Now, it would be perfectly understandable if Jesus didn't have time to help these guys on this particular day. He's kind of got a lot lot going on, right? He's got big fish to fry. In the 1970s, psychologists did a study at Princeton Theological Seminary. In the experiment, uh, seminary students were taken one by one, and they were instructed to go across campus to this other building where they were to give kind of an impromptu sermon on the parable of the Good Samaritan. So they're at building A on this side of campus, and uh, you need to go to building B on the other side of campus, and oh, oh, the time got away from us. We're actually, you're late, so hurry up. This is for your final grade, by the way. Now, the students were told they were behind schedule, so they're in a hurry. And uh, what they didn't know was that along the way, there was a plant. The researchers planted a man slumped in a doorway with his eyes closed, and he was coughing and moaning very, very visibly, very audibly. Among the seminarians who were in a hurry, 
to preach about the Good Samaritan, only 10% stopped to help the man. So maybe Jesus is like one of those seminarians. It's not that he doesn't care about the sufferers. He's just in a hurry. He's just got a lot going on. He's got bigger fish to fry than you and your problems, blind men. He's busy. But the character of Jesus is such that he is never lacking in time for those who are in need. What does he do? He hears their cry and he stops. Mind you, there's a massive following going on around him. There is quite a train. And Jesus grinds the whole thing to a halt for two nobodies. He stops. The most important, busy person in the entire universe stops for a couple of useless, blind beggars. And he calls out to them. What do you want me to do for you? And they say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. They express the longing of their hearts. Now, I think we've established in this series uh, that there really isn't any regular, predictable pattern to the method that Jesus uses to heal people. Sometimes he heals people in response to their great faith, like the woman who had a bleeding disorder and came up and touched his robe. Sometimes he heals people even though they have no faith at all. Do you think that the dead girl had faith? No, because she was dead. Sometimes he heals from a distance, like the centurion. He said, only say the word, and this very hour my servant will be healed. Sometimes, like with the leper, he comes up close and touches them. So it's all over the place. Jesus heals in all kinds of different ways. And knowing this... I would think that now would be a really good time for one of those quick, easy, like, you know, express distance healings. Come on, Jesus, just say the word and give the blind men their sight, and then be on your way. That's not what he does, is it? Um, Jesus gets up close and personal. Verse 34 says, Jesus in pity touched their eyes. So, think about this. Jesus calls the men to him. Maybe they were able to stumble some distance toward him. But they're still, these are blind men. They can't get to him that easily. But Jesus goes up to them. He approaches the blind men and touches their eyes. It's not stated, but it's by implication in our passage. And they recovered their sight and followed him. So, just to quickly sum up everything we've said so far. When we suffer, it's not uncommon to feel like Isaac Slade or C.S. Lewis did, that God is sleeping or hiding behind a double-bolted locked door, or just sitting there in some, some street corner smoking a cigarette, indifferent to whatever it is that you're going through. It's not uncommon to feel that way. But the truth is not captive to the way that we feel. God's word paints a very different picture. We see a Christ who stops for suffering people, who calls out to them, who listens to them, who draws near, not only to heal, but to touch, to touch the unclean. Okay, well, that's what Jesus was like in his earthly ministry. That's great. But what about today? 
We might say that that's great that Jesus stopped and helped those blind men. Um, but what I want to know is, can I count on him to show up in my suffering, my life? Two reasons why you can count on him. One, his heart has not changed. Two, his availability has changed. His heart has not changed, but his availability has. Let's start with the heart. One little word in verse 34 takes us right to it. Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes. What is Jesus' heart towards sufferers? Pity. And actually, pity isn't a very good translation. Uh, The word is splognisthes. I'm not going to make you say that. Uh, It means, in a literal sense, he was moved in his guts. His interior constitution, the center of his very being, was moved with compassion when he saw these suffering people. That was his first reaction. I'm wondering if you've ever had a word like slip out of your mouth and then you tried to walk it back, maybe to your spouse, maybe it was to your parents, everybody who's married, come on, let's be honest, you've all said that, had that happen to your spouse. And you get caught off guard and you're like, well, that's not really what I meant, that's not really me, that's not what I meant to say. My, my, the real me on the inside didn't mean that thing that inadvertently just came out. But we all know what the truth is, don't we? The thing you say when your guard is down, that very first reaction, that is coming straight out of the interior. That's what's going on under the hood. That's what's in your heart. Freud called it a Freudian slip. Um, But we tend to reveal what's actually going on Sometimes unconsciously. So here's my question. Who is Jesus really? What's his heart? What's his first reaction? Jesus is the kind of person who, when he sees someone suffering, his immediate gut-level reaction is to move toward them, not away. And that is who Jesus Christ is for you right now. Hebrews 13, 8 says that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He has not changed. His character is his character. You can count on it. You can take it to the bank even when everything else fails you. His heart has not changed. But his availability has changed. I've been reading this wonderful book called Gentle and Lowly by a scholar named Dane Ortland, and it's all about the heart of Christ. And it's not the kind of book that you speed read. I like to listen to audiobooks when I'm doing the dishes. This is not an audiobook book, so just don't waste your audible credits on it. Buy the hard copy. This is a wake up early with strong black coffee and a yellow highlighter kind of book. Um, And this one quote blew my mind. Ortland says this, Jesus Christ is closer to you today than he was to the sinners and sufferers he spoke with and touched in his earthly ministry. Jesus Christ is closer to you today. He is more available to you and to me than he was to those two blind men. 
And the New Testament is actually very, very clear with the, about this. Uh, from Matthew to Revelation, it's all over the place. We hear over and over again, over 130 times, that we are en Christu. We are in Christ. And that isn't just some throwaway phrase. It means that Jesus has united himself to his people by his spirit in such a way and to such an extent that he identifies with us and calls us his, anybody know it? Shout it out. Body. He's united himself to us. You can't become any more available to someone than being united with them. He's so close and so moved with compassion towards us that there's nothing that we suffer that he does not also suffer. Paul says in Romans 8.26 that the spirit, that is the spirit of Jesus, intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. What I'm trying to describe here is an unparalleled level of intimacy and compassion. Compared to this, uh, Mother Teresa is like um, a despot. <laughs> Compared to this, the most intimate, amazing marriage you've ever seen is like a middle school dance. This is a quality of love that goes beyond anything that our little minds are able to comprehend. That is who Christ is toward you. We make up all these false impressions about God because uh, we base it all on our feelings and not on what God's word actually says. Who is he? He is close. And he is compassionate. He suffers with you. So I want to close with a brief word about feelings and truth. Uh, a long time ago in another church, I heard a very wise woman share her testimony during the Sunday service. And she was pretty raw and honest about her ongoing struggle with bipolar disorder. She sought treatment and experienced a great deal of healing, but it was still a thing. It was still a major struggle in her life, right? It didn't just go away overnight. And she said that because of this illness, she often found that she couldn't trust her own feelings. Uh, she might feel great when everything was actually not very so good. Um, and then sometimes she would feel horribly depressed and in despair when really everything was fine. And she said that's why she needed the church. Uh, she needed the help of other people, and most of all, she needed the word of God to remind her that the truth is not captive to the way that she feels. And I was like, man, that's all of us. That's me. My feelings come and go. You may feel abandoned. You may feel that God is off sleeping or lazily smoking a cigarette, that he's indifferent, that he doesn't care. And I think it's okay to feel those things and to uh, just let that emotion come. Martin Luther said that there's a difference between letting uh, birds fly over your head and letting them make a nest in your hair. Feelings aren't necessarily good or bad. They're just feelings. They're indicators. But truth orients us to reality. And again, this is why we need a Bible. When we talk about the heart of Jesus Christ, this isn't just like a bunch of sentimental gas that I'm getting up here and 
and giving you. This isn't my personal opinion about the way that I want to view God. Um, I'm not skipping over the hard parts. This is actually pretty heavy theology if you want to get into it. This is his word. This is how he describes himself. He's put his cards on the table and said, Hey guys, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. I am moved with compassion toward you. I am available to you. When you are suffering, I move toward you. So God's not promised that his ways will make sense to you. Um, But he has promised that his ways are good. He never said that you won't walk through darkness. But he has promised that he walks through it with you. He's not indifferent. And so if there's any lesson from the healings of Jesus uh, that we need to garner, it's, it's a recognition of the heart of Jesus. And that's the heart of the Father and the heart of the Spirit, because they're one God. And it's merciful beyond anything that you can possibly imagine in your mind. So the door may be closed and double-bolted, but I want to remind you that the locks are all on your side. He's the one knocking. And when knocking fails, he's the one with the crowbar prying it open. Amen.